Welcome to Blog Talk Radio in high fidelity. Health Week on the Blog Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. This episode is brought to you by Health Innovation Media, monitoring and engaging thought leaders in the innovation space, from ACOs to emerging value-based healthcare initiatives. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and co-host of Pop Health Week, and in the virtual studio today is my colleague, Fred Goldstein, principal co-host and co-founder here at Pop Health Week, and at the risk of select over-disclosure, I understand Fred's experiencing some acute back pain from a recent kayaking incident in the Florida intercoastal waterway. So how are we doing today, Fred? I'm doing all right, Greg. Thanks so much for bringing that up. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks at the Florida Association of ACOs meeting. Oh, yeah, there you go. I'm looking forward to that. It'll be our fourth year in a row helping uh, Nicole Bradbury at all down there. So... For those of you not familiar with Fred, he is a veteran healthcare executive and president of Accountable Health LLC, which is a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Fred is the proud father of the Medicare annual wellness visit. He serves on the editorial boards of the Journal of Population Health Management, uh, the Population Health News the Best Practices Review Panel for the Institute for Medicaid Innovations, and was recently appointed to the faculty at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, John Bauer School of Population Health. Fred is known on Twitter as at F.S. Goldstein. My background includes thought leadership and strategy guidance for hospitals, health systems, and physician-led ventures. I publish and principally author ACOWatch.com. Do follow me on Twitter via at the number two health guru. And now for today's special guest, Anthony Slonim, MD, DRPH, fellow American College of Healthcare Executives. Dr. Slonim is president and CEO of Renown Health, Northern Nevada's healthcare leader, and Reno's only locally owned not-for-profit health system. Dr. Slonim is an innovator and proven leader in healthcare at both the regional and national levels. During his notable career, Dr. Slonim has developed a profile as an expert in patient safety, accountable care, health care quality, and innovative health care delivery models, focusing on improving health care within the community. He is board certified in internal medicine, pediatrics, internal medicine, critical care, and pediatric clinical career, and is an academic leader with faculty appointments as clinical professor in the Departments of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Nevada Renal School of Medicine. He also holds a master's degree and a doctorate in administrative medicine and health policy from George Washington University Center for Health Policy Studies and has more than 100 publications and 15 textbooks to his name. Since joining Renowned Health in July of 2014, Dr. Slonim has reoriented Northern Nevada's largest locally governed not-for-profit healthcare network. He launched a five-year strategic plan 
that is focused on the community's overall health while embracing the national triple aim initiatives of improving quality care and patient satisfaction, all while reducing costs. Dr. Slonim also ushered in a new era of national collaboration to establish a medical training campus at Renown and expanded the region's quaternary care services in collaboration with Stanford Medicine. And with that introduction, over to you, Fred. Help us get to know what Dr. Slonim is up to at uh, building that Renown Health Northern Nevada network. Thanks so much, Greg. And uh, Tony, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Fred. Great to be here. Yeah, so you bring in a really interesting perspective as Greg got into it and going through your background, which is just amazing, your multiple specialties you focused on and the DPH. How how have you as a clinician looked at that and then applied it to where you're at now with Renown? Yeah, I think uh, – thank you again so much for the opportunity to share with your listeners some some perspective on population health and where I think not only locally and regionally we're going, but nationally we're going in this space. Uh, from a, as a clinician, <clears throat> I think you know you really learn as a doctor the opportunity to interface with patients and families and really handle that one-on-one conversation. It wasn't though until I got my doctoral education in public health where I really learned about how to drive to a population health outcome level, and that's not. That's not something that clinicians ordinarily get. In, in medical school, we get one course, maybe two, on population health and epidemiology. But in my doctoral studies for my public health degree, wow, I had 12 courses in public health. And I often joke with people that my public health doctor is probably worth more to me at this point in time than my MD because of how it allows me to focus on the broader needs of the community. Yeah, and, and you're in, a, in an interesting community having been to Reno. It's a great place to go and visit and a lot of things to do there from both, you know, outdoors and the indoors of the casinos. But it is kind of a unique community. And, and how have you looked at positioning your system to sort of meet some of those needs? Well, Renowned Health is a, is a wonderful health system. I've been here now about four years. And we're, we enjoy large market share in the community. We're the only not-for-profit integrated health delivery network. So what that means is that every dollar that we earn gets reinvested back into community programming to make sure that we're driving the health care and health needs of the community to a new level. And what the integrated part means, which many people don't realize, is that we happen to, in our system, have some hospitals. We've got three of them. But hospital care isn't all we do. We have employed physicians in our medical group. We have a skilled nursing facility, a rehabilitation hospital, a children's hospital. We try to provide for the community a comprehensive approach so that they can engage with us where where they need us on that continuum. And I think the one thing that I've contributed in my tenure here has been a way to reorganize our thinking beyond the walls of the hospital. It's not just about health care, things we do for people when they're sick and injured. You really want your health system to be there to talk about your health. How do we keep people well from a physical, 
mental and spiritual perspective and this community is great for that because we have amazing outdoor activities we we have great skiing we have physical activity bike riding and and 300 days of sunshine a year so it's really a great community in which to advance a conversation not only about health care but health so there's a, a great video I watched of you actually on your website talking about your work around ACOs and, and population health. And you you got into the ACO early in a sense. And what was your thinking behind that? And how has that been? Yeah, you know, I, I, I have great fortune of having had experiences. I'll, I'll, I'll land you on how I got here at Renown. But way back in 2007 when I was working for the Carilion Clinic, we were a Dartmouth demonstration hospital for the ACO um, demonstrations that were going on. They selected four organizations in the country, and we were one of them. So I cut my teeth really early on in the ACO movement, 11 years ago now, and then had the great opportunity in my next job to start and build two accountable care organizations at Barnabas Health, Now, when I came to Reno, there there was only one way I knew how to think about the community's health, and that was through a population health lens that helped to advance the conversation not only about health care but health and thought about how we provide for the needs of all in our community, not just the select few who could afford it. So as you built this, I know we talked a little bit about pre-show can you talk about the Healthy Nevada program and what you've done with that? It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that we've come to understand, and, and we're a lot earlier to the conversation, those of us who believe in accountable care, a, a lot more relevance for us beyond the clinical care is the overall health status of those that we serve. And we know clinical care is only one fraction of that, about 20%. But a major contributor to your overall health status, it also includes your social determinants, the environment in which you live, your genetics. And so what we've tried to accomplish in building out our ACO is how do we provide a robust data warehouse where we could apply predictive analytics and machine learning and really learn about the health and healthcare risks of those in our community that we're serving. As a very important part of that, we've launched a major population level screening test for genetics across our population. We've offered this test for free, and at this point, we've got 35,000 people that have volunteered to be participants in the Healthy Nevada Project. We have our sights set on 250,000 people by January of 2020 and are well on our way to integrating those multiple determinants of health status. And, you know, that's fascinating to think about getting that many people involved. How did you do that? Well, you know, the real credit goes to those in the community who put their hands up to be participants. So when we, when we came together, we thought about how we would offer the test and, and making it free for people. 
So they got what they get out of it is the opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves, but they also get real important feedback. The problem with most clinical trials in the country these days is you're assigned to a placebo group, you're assigned to a treatment arm, you never actually know are you getting the treatment or are you getting a placebo. Here, we felt it was important to give something back to people. And so whether they were interested in their ancestry or the reports that we're about to roll out in the next two weeks or so, incidental genetic findings that predispose them to disease, there was something in it for them. And that was enough to entice them to the conversation and understand a little bit differently about how we might make health uh, better for them and their family and our community more broadly. So can they select or does that data automatically feed over, say, to their primary care provider so that they could then begin to get counseling on those kinds of things? Yes. Yeah, so what we've done for people, we're doing this under the research umbrella, and what we've shared with people, we want to engage them, Fred, in a conversation about their health. And we leave it up to them to decide who and when they want to share that information with. So we have anonymous genetic counselors available to them if they want to ask questions. And if the participant chooses, they can bring that report to their doctor to get important information and have it included in their medical record. We were hesitant uh, and, and purposely designed the study in this way because while there are protections about people making uh, inf- you know, dis- uh, decisions against you if you have a chronic condition or a predisposing condition, we don't know if those regulations are going to hold out on the long term given what we're hearing on the national profile in healthcare. And so we felt it best to give the decision making to the participant who owns their data and the information derived from their data. That's really excellent because you talked about, I mean, Gina exists today, but, you know, there are some conversations around that. So I think that's absolutely the right approach to give the individual the information, provide them with that counseling, and then the opportunity to share that. As you've looked also broader, as you talked about with these social determinants of health that you mentioned earlier in the community, are there any initiatives you've been working on to uh, in that realm in, the, in Reno? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that came out of the data, because while the genetics piece is really fun and exciting to talk about, there are many other elements that you can get out of this data warehouse. Well, there are many, many communities around the country, as we know, that are struggling with the crisis of opiates and addiction. And in northern Nevada, we're no different. In fact, you have to remember that our, you know, for many years, our entire economy was based around gaming and gambling, and in some ways that relates to alcohol use, addiction, smoking, those kinds of things. And so uh, when we looked at this problem in our community through the data set, we did a geospatial map by zip code to identify over the last 10 years the individual opiate prescriptions that were dispensed by doctors to people. And as you watch this geomap kind of explode over over the 10 years of its 15-second video clip, you see the enormous numbers of prescriptions that were being dispensed for opiates at the local level. Now, we've put in place some programming, not only on the dispensing side, to help doctors be smarter about the way that they um, 
the way that they prescribe opiates, but also on the consumer side, where we've put checks and balances that only allow them to get so many medications per prescription and go through a process in order to get that refilled. And when you, if you look at the time sequencing, after the interventions, you see the number of prescriptions for opiates going down. It's dramatic in terms of the way that we're impacting the health of the community using smart analytic approaches and data. And we could not do that without our partners at the Desert Research Institute who are um, partners with us in what we call the Institute for Health Innovation and the renowned Healthy Nevada Project. Wow. I mean, the, the opioid addiction is, a, is a, a big issue. And as you said, you've started to see some of those changes. Are they beginning to change the numbers in terms of, you know, either um, people seeking treatment or, or perhaps even overdoses within your community? Have you been able to get to that data point yet? We have not seen the outcome of uh, overdoses yet. We do know that there's what, what a terrible tragedy for a family. Mm-hmm. All of us know people who unfortunately suffer from addiction, and we know that this is not an individual issue. It's a family issue. And it's our job to treat this like other medical conditions and, not, and get past the stigma that too often accompanies addiction. We have not found that outcome, but what we also realize is that we did not have enough support services in the community to actually treat addiction. So we were honored about six weeks ago or so, great community members, Stacy Matheson and her husband Chuck, kicked off for us the Behavioral Health and Addiction Institute at Renown with a substantial donation so that we could get ahead of this terrible problem in our community and make sure that people who were suffering from addiction had right here at home the services they needed to get past that that terrible crisis. Excellent. And as, as you've talked about these social determinants of health and begin to work on them, it, there's, there's sort of this inherent conflict um, because if you begin to move further upstream, you're obviously going to impact potential, you know, revenue, admissions to the hospital, other services. How have you looked at that, and how are you planning to deal with that over the coming years? Yeah, the good news is <laughs> I, I wish we were that good, Fred. We're not that good. None of us are that good. <laughs> So the problem is, right, while theoretically that's a constraint, we, I'll speak for myself, I think we got a long way to go before we get that good to worry about the admission deficiencies. Um, and it also goes to the, to the point of that's why I don't worry about it a lot as a large integrated health system CEO, because the good news and the right thing for the patients and the right thing for our country is if we improve quality and reduce cost, that's the value proposition. And how we go about doing that, if it's reducing unnecessary admissions, that's good news for people and families. And if we go about thinking about how we can provide them services in alternate locations with a lower price point, even better. And many of those places are more convenient and more consumer-friendly. If I can telemed into you in your living room if you've got a sore throat and a fever – that's actually better for you, doesn't contaminate the whole waiting room, and allows us to provide care in a much more efficient way. So how broad-based now is your telemedicine approach? Uh, we actually, you know, northern Nevada is a, is a unique place in that it is so rural. Yep. So our health system <clears throat> – 
is the only tertiary provider covering 100,000 square miles between Sacramento and Salt Lake City. There are 30 rural hospitals that surround us and help us to serve the needs of their community. But at some, at some level, you know, we don't want somebody driving six hours into town to be able to get access when we could answer that question remotely. We've done a good job in the rural environment. There's still more for us to do. I want to be able to use, for the convenience factor and the consumer piece of this, telemedicine, again, not only in the rurals, but down the block where it's more convenient for somebody to be seen in their living room. One of the places where we've had dramatic success um, I'm not sure this is well known uh, out in the world, but in northern Nevada, we also have a number of prisons. The prison system is pretty robust. And so we've used telemedicine as a technology in the correctional system so that inmates don't have to travel with you know, two guards four hours each way to be seen in the office. How do we provide that kind of you know, telemedicine virtual visit at scale for inmates who may be further away from us and assure that the quality of care is at the same or level or better. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great example of it. Most people don't think about the corrections facilities and, and how to begin to integrate with that. On a, you, you're also involved on a national level, and I think you chaired the Journal of Managed Care's ACO Coalition. What are you seeing in the national space? Yeah, you know, I think... For me, this has certainly been a journey over time. <clears throat> the, I think the way I would say it is ACOs, I think, really had a powerful spot when uh, the Affordable Care Act came into place in March of 2010. We were all excited about value-based care. We all really took to the idea about the ACOs, the MSSP program, Medicare Shared Savings Program came out, and we were all signing up like crazy to run our programs, and I think we've lost some some steam. I think that we've honestly lost some uh, energy behind the movement. Now, what that doesn't mean is that the value proposition is going away. I think that health systems around the country are continuing to grapple with this value proposition of improving quality and reducing costs. Total costs of care is what I mean when I say costs. And so how are we thinking about that, driving that? Whether the term ACO stays or goes shouldn't much matter in the next decade. What's really important is we've got a budget deficit and we are spending a lot of money in this industry we call healthcare, and there are smarter and more innovative ways to deliver those services. Um, and I think that was Really, the the grandfather movement of that was the ACO conversation, but it's still our work regardless of what it might be called in the future. Right. Yeah, I agree. This move to value-based care is going to drive on uh, regardless of, of, as you said, what it's called or or which systems we set up. And within the ACOs, you've seen a a pretty substantial difference between, uh, although it seems to a little bit different now in the most recent report, between sort of those physician-owned and those healthcare system ones, the small versus large. Um, Does that bode maybe negatively for hospitals over time, or is there a way that hospitals can sort of get this figured out and move on? 
Yeah, I I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think that um, the good news, if I when I when I spend a lot of time with physician leaders who are thinking about how they can impact the work that we all have ahead of us, uh, you know, I, I I'm the editor in chief of the Physician Leadership Journal, and we see a lot of articles coming through about what physicians can do to be leaders in driving this conversation to better health and healthcare, and. I, it's, it's a fact, you're absolutely right, that physician-owned ACOs perform better than non-physician-owned ACOs, hospital-based ACOs. But I think over time, as hospital and health systems integrate better with physicians, you'll see some of that uh, diminish uh, with time as we move forward. We know that the number of physicians who are choosing employment by large hospital systems continues to increase, and there's also a generational issue there where younger doctors who are graduating today many of whom are women because now the gender mix in, in physicians has shifted, want employment as an option and don't want to be independent, uh, you know, running their own independent small business. How we think together with our physician colleagues is really going to be important. We need to put more physicians. I think we'll be successful if we put more physicians in leadership roles on the hospital side. That will translate that information well to the hospital arena. And and as the, as these systems have been looking at, as you talk about some of these newer newer approaches, I'm teaching a course in ACOs at at, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center this uh, this semester, and next week actually is on provider sponsored health plans, which is sort of a step, you know, obviously beyond that ACO model. What's your thinking on that? I, well, I own one, so I'm really happy about it. <laughs> so <laughs> here at Renown Health, we have Hometown Health, which is uh, our integrated uh, our integrated provider-sponsored plan. We insure one-third of the community. We have a great product, Medicare Advantage Commercial, TPA services. And, and the way I, that's why I was so eager to come here and participate. If you've got an ACO and you've got an integrated health plan and you've got the doctors aligned, wow, you can really deliver population-based care in a very different way because you've got not only the payment mechanism, you know, a, a provider-sponsored plan is the ultimate in pop health and, and ACOs. Mm-hmm. And so we're pulling those three arms together to be able to affect what we believe is the best care for our community. Uh, yeah, and so for those that haven't taken that big leap you know, with their own plan, what would you tell them? Um, it's a really difficult time right now. Um, I'm fortunate in that our health plan was started by my predecessors who were, you know, who were really smart 30 years ago and got into the health plan business. And I just enjoy the fruits of their labor now 30 years later. It, they were the real pioneers in thinking about, wow, if you put a health plan into a system, what might that look like? And the fact that the numbers now speak for themselves, where we've got one-third of the community insured and we've got 60% health delivery market market share, those two things work in concert as we try to make sure that we're subscribing to the best quality, most efficient care. Mm-hmm. And, is, and you bring up some great points. One is, you know, you're, a, you're the dominant player. You're not for profit in that community. You've had this plan for a while. Is, uh, one of the things I've been looking at is, is there a threshold for, for 
you know, your community, maybe number of providers or how large you are before you might consider something like a provider-sponsored health plan? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we have a big shortage in Nevada in both primary care and specialty care. Um, We are struggling not only with physicians but with nurses, technicians, physical therapists, all kinds of health disciplines. And I don't know why. The place is a beautiful place to live. Uh, So come on out if you want to live here and you want to practice medicine with us. But you do have to have the problem you get. Just like if you have a small ACO, if you have a small number of covered lives in your health plan, you bear the volatility of the risk. Think of health plans, insurance, and ACOs as a fraction, right? There's a numerator and denominator. You want to dilute the numerator's risk among a really big denominator of people who are healthy or well but, and won't use as many healthcare resources. It's the same conversation for the ACO. And so how we go about making sure that we're driving sufficient size from a, from a population service area perspective is really important. And on the, on the health plan side, there are also regulations about how deep your provider network needs to be and in what specialties before you can mm-hmm. actually get licensed by the state authorities. Right. There's just a ton going on in that space. And I think it's, it's really interesting and an opportunity. And, and I know we're coming up on the, on the hard stop here on the half hour, but I'd love to get you back on. Any final thoughts you would give to hospitals as they try to transition into this value-based world? We're seeing MSSP people potentially dropping out, et cetera. I, I think that the biggest uh, recommendation I could give to people is don't, we're a very heavily regulated industry. Don't let the regulations hold you back. Use creativity and innovation to make sure we're driving good quality, highly efficient care for those that we serve in our community. Fantastic. Well, you just, you've got so many fascinating things going on up there in Reno and in Nevada and really appreciate you coming on, Tony. It's been a pleasure having you. My pleasure, Fred. Thank you. And never discount the influence of those New, New Jersey casinos. That'll have to be the last word. <laughs> and that'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Anthony Slonim, President and CEO of Renowned Health, for his time and many insights today. Do follow Dr. Slonim and Renowned Health's work on the web via www.renownedhealth.org and on Twitter by at Renowned Health, respectively. And finally, if your hospital health system, physician venture, or healthcare conference is in the market for social media support, including content development, curation, or engagement, or amplification, do ping me on Twitter via @2healthguru or email Greg with two G's at Health Innovation Media. Fred and I will be happy to lend our subject matter expertise. Until we meet again on Pop Health Week. For Fred Goldstein and Dr. Slonim, this is Greg Masters saying bye now.